Securing the software supply chain is not the sole provenance of software vendors. It's also a critical part of securing the national infrastructure. Government agencies from around the world are struggling to find ways to create and manage secure software while providing useful solutions to their users without limiting how they get their work done. In addition, they are trying to figure out the best way to integrate third-party non-governmental software into the software supply chain without causing a security risk. It's a loose tightrope over an open abyss if something goes wrong. Insecure software has been shown to create havoc not just in the software itself, but through the manipulation of the hardware it is running. You need look no farther than Kim Zetter's expose, Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. In April 2019, I was invited to host a panel at the International Conference on Cyber Engagement in Washington, D.C. to discuss securing the software supply chain. On the panel were four of the top voices in software supply chain management. Edna Conway, Chief Security Officer, Global Value Chain at Cisco. Joyce Correll, Assistant Director, Supply Chain and Cyber Directorate, National Counterintelligence and Security Center, U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Bob Klasky, Director, National Risk Management Center, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, Associate Director for Science and Strategic Partnerships, Center for Devices and Radiological Health, U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This episode of the DevSecOps podcast is the full session from the conference. It is an extended session, running an hour and a half, significantly longer than our usual broadcasts. I think you'll find it worth the time. Thank you for the ICCE for allowing rebroadcast of the panel. So pull up a chair, sit back, and listen in as we discuss securing the software supply chain. This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically monitor and remediate open source risk. I'm going to get started with my story here as they're bringing the, the panelists out. You know, there was a headline in yesterday's news feed that really jumped out at me. It was, Trojanized team viewer used in targeted attacks against multiple embassies. The article continued, in each attack, the threat actors sent targeted individuals an Excel file containing malicious macros via the email with the subject, military financing program. The document itself it was reasonably crafted with a logo of the U.S. Department of State on it and marked as top secret. There's so many of these, I started lining them up. Shira Rubinoff, who many of you might know, posted this morning, more than half of British companies reported a cyber attack in 2019. And I said, Shira, hold on a second. You know, we're only into April, and you're telling me that over half of the British companies have already reported the cyber attack. So in the past month, there's multiple announcements of acknowledged security breaches. 
the MCARE email breach for medical records, bodybuilding.com, had a phishing email that was received starting in July 2018. Medical records, database of 5 million documents released. FBI exposed personal information of thousands of law enforcement and federal agents online. YPRO, which is really getting headline news now, trusted networks and systems were being used to launch cyber attacks against the customers' companies. And then Facebook, we all know the millions of Instagram account passwords were stored in clear text. According to the 2018 Software Supply Chain Report, companies can be exposed for months before discovering a breach, giving the attackers the advantage of moving against a known vulnerability in a matter of days, if not hours. Equifax was the whipping post for months in that mass media frenzy because of this, but what wasn't talked about was that Equifax was not alone. As an example, Marriott had attackers within its system in 2014, which remained undetected until November 2018. The exposure was 500 million records. The 2018 Software Supply Chain Report also investigated download patterns of the vulnerable struts component before and after the Equifax breach. And if you want a soundbite for this session, this is it right here. It virtually, the download patterns for struts that was known vulnerable, it stayed virtually flatlined, meaning the same number of struts components continued to be downloaded by thousands of companies even after the Equifax announcement. I consider that personally an industry epic failure. If we don't have the tools to even acknowledge something as big as that and try to do something about it. And so I'd like to start the discussion with the four of us here. Name an epic failure that stopped you in your tracks, that you just said, oh, wow. Edna, you want to start with that? Sure. So, I, you know, I think we were, we were chatting briefly for five minutes behind the scenes here, and, and it's pretty clear that even though the topic is the software supply chain, you cannot look at it in isolation. So if you look at NotPetya for an example, there were lots of digital manufacturing facilities that were dealing with NotPetya in an interesting way. They went to their CISOs, they looked at their own infrastructure environment, and they didn't go to their manufacturing floors. And so they had third-party equipment that was running, yes, you guessed it, Windows, and no one really appreciated the ramification of what those devices, had they been infected, could impact. Things like quality, lead time, shutdown failures. Actually imagine going to your board of directors if you're in enterprise and saying, I'm sorry, we're going to have to declare a loss this quarter because I have to shut down the manufacturing functionality for a product that's being produced, or worse yet, I need to shut down availability of my service. That, to me, was a failure of comprehensive thinking about the supply chain. Great. Thank you. Choice. Sure. Um, so from the government perspective, where I work um, in the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, I'll, I'll answer that question sort of from a bureaucratic perspective. Um, uh, earlier, earlier today, Chris Krebs um, described um, some action taken by the Department of Homeland Security issuing a binding operational directive um, uh, with regard to the company Kaspersky Labs. Um, as a government, it took us so many months to actually reach a point where we had some plan of action uh, to address a risk that 
that, that we, we perceive to be a, a very high priority risk. And um, as we went through this process, we were learning one step at a time, one day at a time. So the, the, um, uh, the past um, inability to come together and know um, and have in place um, you know, rules of engagement, standard operating procedures, a clear understanding of how we partner with other government organizations or the private sector leaves us paralyzed um, in the face of a risk. So I would consider that to be um, a little bit too much time to actually uh, get to the problem solving. Hi, um, Bob Kalaski with the National Risk Management Center. I work for Chris Krebs and Joyce stole mine, so, um, but, but appreciate that. Uh, you know, again, not moving qu quite quickly to supply chain and, and whether we're characters of epic failure or, or just something we need to get better at. You know, the, the thing I point to that has guided a lot of our activity um, in the last couple of years is the, when we first saw activity um, of, of potential threats to our election infrastructure, to the country's election infrastructure, to the state's election infrastructure that we now know came from the Russian government. The U.S. government saw it, but the U.S. government didn't quite understand, at least in the cyber world, how election systems functioned and who were the right people to get that information to. And so we did what I've said before, in the middle of a hurricane, in this case the hurricane being Russian activity against our election infrastructure, we were exchanging business cards. We were learning about systems. And I think a lot of what we're trying to improve as we talk about risk management is having the ability to know how to get information in the hands of somebody who can do something about it in a way that the information makes sense about the risk at speed and having to work through those exercises. So I think a lot of what we will call our failures are not anticipating things that happen and not knowing how to, not having a plan in place to address them. And as we talk throughout the panel, I think you'll see analogies in some of the other things we're right. talking about. Suzanne, I'm interested in yours specifically from the healthcare angle. It's yeah, yeah, so uh, I'm Suzanne Schwartz from the FDA Center for Devices and Radiological Health, and I'll extend from Bob's comments, you know, we, we look at everything through the lens of protecting the public health, promoting the public health. So when I think about an epic failure, I think about how WannaCry attack uh, occurred in NHS in the UK and what that potential is in terms of disruption of clinical care, of patient care across not just a single hospital, but across multiple hospitals, across multiple systems, across regions, and potentially even nationally, and what that means for patients in terms of their ability to receive necessary, sometimes emergent, purely critical care when systems have failures and you see the cascading effects of that. Hey, thank you. One of the things that we talked about at the five of the spec stage, which I thought was fascinating because it gives a different perspective on all this. And I'll just open it up for discussion between the four of you. What do you see as the weakest link within the software supply chain? Anybody that wants to start it off? I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, I actually think because really understanding supply chain risk management is still a nascent discipline, both in government and in the private sector. We have folks who have deep expertise in some areas, but we need more people with that level of expertise. So I think just an awareness and an understanding of what the critical dependencies are in your supply chain, whether it's software, software doesn't work without hardware, you know, that's part of the system. So the weakest link is at the very fundamental level is education and awareness. 
Yeah, I would echo the same sentiments. I, I don't think it's about identifying a specific entity uh, you know, a, along the supply chain as much as it is in terms of raising that level of visibility that situational awareness and that education as you speak to, because um, that presents itself when that, when that education and that awareness is not there, that presents the biggest challenges and vulnerabilities and exposure for us within the healthcare ecosystem. And so I get to add transparency and the ability to have transparency yeah, yeah. in what's in, in the scene and what's in the software and so that the people who know what to look for have the, have the ability to look for that and the more transparency you create, the easier it's to right. ascertain. Edna, one of the things that I'm very happy that you're with us because there's been a lot of Fed and government talk today, so we have enterprise here. One of the things that I'd like to consider is what are the differences between enterprise and government software supply chain? So I think there are lots of similarities, but I think for enterprise at the end of the day, we feel compelled to be responsible for the overall integrity of what we deliver, whether it's a service, software standalone, or something that's actually integrated into firmware into a product that's sold. So when you start to think about that, for example, my answer to the prior question would have been the weakest link is the inability to deploy uh, a comprehensive and consistently adhered to model to test software. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we've all seen different statistics. I know you've, you've cited one that talked about 80% of software being from open source. Um, our, our statistics suggest, at least for us, it's about 60 to 65 percent from open source. The reality of saying, I'm going to figure out who's involved in that, where they sat, what kind of equipment they used, what their national integrity and allegiance is, is ridiculous in a cyber environment. So that means you have to look to your OEM or to your software licensor and say, what are you doing? So the weak link to me is a fundamental tenet of taking responsibility, number one. I think our government takes huge responsibility. They have a tremendous burden given the breadth and depth of their supply chain. So mine is smaller by comparison, right? We have about 125,000 suppliers who go across about 1.3 million uh, SKUs. Uh, and offer anything as diverse as cloud service infrastructure capacity for storage compute to logistics and transportation to uh, hardware actual uh, componentry, which includes, let's think about an integrated surf, uh, circuit software. So I, I think the difference is personal responsibility at an enterprise level is easier hmm. at the end of the day. I think no one truly appreciates, unless you've worked in public-private partnerships directly, how difficult it is when all you do, which is no disrespect to DARPA and some of the wonderful development that's going on in the government, but at the end of the day, you have a supply chain, you call it a supply chain because you consume, right? We make things. We call it a value chain um, because it delivers value across a comprehensive group. So there really is a dichotomy there. And the degree of integrity that you bring to it is equivalent, but quite frankly, the visibility that we can demand 
from the members of that third party ecosystem is very different than what the government can demand. No, government, respond, any response to that? <laughs> Amen. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think, think Ed is right. Um, you know, going back to sort of the education theme, um, some of what we have in government from a perspective is one that the knowledge gaps necessary to manage a supply chain and do that and, and to use the incentives that we have to effectively manage the supply chain, there, there's some gaps if you see that at the agency level. And then some of the tools in, in terms of procurement, we are not as nimble from a procurement perspective for some good reasons. You know, there's a burden of proof as you make different procurement decisions. There's an administrative process to not, not you know, unfairly advantage one business or not, not another business. That we can't be, I, I would speculate, we can't be as nimble in managing the risk to our supply chain as Edna and, and Cisco can be in managing the risk to her value chain. Um, but you know, one of the advantages we have on the government side is if we make these big movements, hopefully that, that has influence broader than just our supply chain. We'll be right back after the break. Last month at the Chaos Engineering Summit, I had someone I had never met before come over and say hello. Hey, I heard your voice and I knew it was you. <laughs> Needless to say, that put a big smile on my face. This is Mark Miller, executive producer of the DevSecOps Days podcast. This is a broadcast for the practitioner who is interested in security as it relates to DevOps and DevSecOps. I want to continue to grow the community and can use your help. For frequent listeners, I'd like you to forward a link to this podcast to one other person in your network. Yep, that's right. Right now. While you're listening. Just hit that little share button and we'll move on. For new listeners, welcome. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. If you don't like it, tell me. Not to sound too much like NPR. Well, I guess I do a little bit. Community support is what keeps this broadcast going. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And thanks for spreading the word. It's interesting that one of the, the topics, and I haven't heard it talked about today, so I think it's going to be interesting, is when Edwards Deming was talking about you know, what he did at Toyota, one of the things he said is, you have to have trusted suppliers. How are we finding trusted suppliers? What's the process? Oh, well, that's a, that's a question for a big bottle of Barolo. Uh, <laughs> okay. The, the reality is, so you hit the nail on the head with the question of trust, right? And, and I, this is my view, um, but is a very, uh, I will state it as many times as I can, um, as much as I will say that this is National Supply Chain Integrity Month. Uh, the, I think that the currency that we live in today is, it is the currency of the digital economy, and guess what, it's the same currency we've always had. Bob, you've heard me say this a million times. Eric Wenger from our government affairs team is in there. He's heard it two million times. It's trust. It's not data. It's not technology. It's trust. And what we all need to recognize is that the wonderfulness of data is that allows us to gain visibility and build trust. And we use technologies. We can throw out the jargon du jour of AI, machine learning, blockchain, to actually vet the integrity of the data upon which we build trust, but at some point you need to have trust. 
there was an effort out there, an international standard, it's ISO 20243, that sought to actually look at, rather than how do I trust this device at this time, in this rev, with this software, and these components, to actually say, how do I know you're a trusted supplier? Yeah. And what we did was we looked, we, we broke it down into, and it still exists, it's ISO 20243, and we looked at three categories. Here's the elements. Secure development, secure engineering. A lot of people say, that's interesting, why are those different? Can you say software and hardware? Um, and secure supply chains. And thinking about those three together really allow us to look at third-party providers and assess what they're doing in a meaningful way. International standards are not the solution to everything. That's what we had talked about mm -hmm. backstage, right? Suzanne, this is critical to your work. How do you trust the software suppliers when it comes to medical devices? So I'm going to flip the question around a little bit uh, because FDA and its regulating manufacturers, whether they are drug manufacturers, device, biologic manufacturers, that responsibility sits on the manufacturer, okay. correct? Um, and it becomes important for the manufacturer to have established what the appropriate processes and documentation are that um, can be demonstrated as far as that being a trusted supplier and a trusted supply chain where the integrity of the supply chain, uh, uh, there's evidence of that um, and that it can be provided to the FDA um, at the time of uh, either uh, certain types of submissions or as well during the post-market period. But as an agency, there is a basis of trust. We have to start with that. Okay, great. Uh, Joyce and Bob, I, I had a specific one in mind when I was looking at this. It was, uh, and Joyce, it's because of something you said, agencies need to assume there will be vulnerabilities in their software supply chain from third-party suppliers. Uh, expand on that. Is there an acceptable level of vulnerability? But, so let me, let me answer the trust question first. Oh. Um, I, I like to say trust but verify. Okay. And, and that's, um, the, uh, that's a, a, a thought process where in, in working with the private sector, um, what is the responsiveness of your industry partners? Um, the, the, the software supply chain is constantly evolving with um, new product releases, new software updates. It's a dynamic environment. The business environment is, is changing as well. So a, a, a firm with, with whom you um, engage in business, and if you're going to work with them over a period of years, their, their set of suppliers and their supplier suppliers are going to change over time. So the, the type of partnership, the type of collaboration you have, you know, where, where you can um, uh, tell your, your industry partner, hey, I have some concerns, and what is the level of transparency and the responsiveness with which the industry partner reacts to that? Um, you uh, opened your remarks with giving some statistics about companies that um, had um, suffered a breach and didn't notify anybody for a, an incredibly lengthy period of time. That's the kind of thing you want to verify, and um, uh, you know those types of behaviors of delays to address and mitigate are are concerning. So, you know, trust trust but verify. To your question about um, you know vulnerabilities, as, as I said, the, um, you know, the, the the technology environment is is you know messy. So 
you know, vulnerabilities may crop in through um, uh, building systems of systems where you add something that hasn't been, you know, thoroughly tested with all of the other parts of your system, um, a vulnerability may be introduced um, that's, that's um, an unintended introduction. Right. So, so when you think about um, an, an organization has to know uh, at an intimate level what its risk tolerance is. And when you know what your risk tolerance is and, and you own your mission, then you can determine what level, uh, what level of vulnerability is acceptable for you. Risk tolerance, is that financially based? What's it based on? Um, it's, it's, um, so it's, it's based on all, all types of risk. Um, if you are, um, you know, the, um, if you're NASA and you have a, you know, um, uh, uh, objects in space um, and there's a problem with your object in space, you can't fix it necessarily from a ground station, so you can't rip and replace you know, certain types of things, whereas, so you would have a very low risk tolerance in that environment, whereas um, uh, something, uh, a commodity item that's readily available and readily replaceable, you might have more, more tolerance there because you can quickly replace those things and it's an affordable replacement. So we, we see this where, you know, some organizations do a, a lifetime purchase of commodity items for the length of a project. If I could just also add um, some additional comments that, Joyce, you kind of spurred uh, my thoughts around uh, with regard to uh, the integrity and the trusted uh, nature of uh, software in the supply chain. So, and this really comes out of WannaCry and the concerns that healthcare organizations had brought forward with respect to medical devices that reside on their networks and really not having an understanding in terms of what those devices may have within them with respect to software that's already vulnerable, that have known vulnerabilities. And, um, a key effort that the FDA has been engaged with, with the private sector, with medical device manufacturers, multiple hospitals, and in collaboration with NTIA's Department of Commerce as well, um, is related to software bill of materials and software transparency. And we feel that strongly about uh, the importance of that level of transparency that we introduced in recent guidance policy, which was released as draft back in October, that our expectation of medical device manufacturers for new devices going on the market is that there be that bill of materials that uh, is uh, open publicly, you know, to the potential customer to be aware of and uh, uh, potentially also to be able to uh, do the crosswalk over to a known vulnerability database so that there is awareness around that. Um, and that there would also be an expectation for manufacturers to continuously update that information as new information around emerging vulnerabilities also uh, becomes available through the lifetime of that device. So that's something that we uh, feel very strongly about, um, and uh, we do have the ecosystem's uh, uh, recognition of its importance and support in this effort. Uh, so right now, uh, we've been working, again, with NTIA uh, and with uh, multiple systems and manufacturers at a proof of concept in demonstrating that. Right. And, and, and I just want to add, you know, I, I like the fact that Suzanne's got a lower risk tolerance than, than <laughs> other folks there. I, I think that's really important, right? Yeah, that absolutely. It's know your systems, it's have a risk tolerance that's based on the functions of what you're doing and put in place the things to really manage the risk. I, I mean, one of the things, I think, as a first principle of the supply chain conversation is 
let's keep it on risk and not talk about compliance and yeah. silver bullet compliance solutions and demonstrate you're doing something to chase the problem that was just identified a couple years ago and then you've got a compliance regime going around that. It's no, it's, it's go through the risk process, don't have don't be afraid to have the risk tolerance conversation and, and talk about it in that terms, but know your own assets and you know, some accountability on the risk that you're accepting wherever you sit, sit in managing a supply chain is an important element around that. But, but the last thing we want is to you know, hear the bad news and just start whacking moles because the adversary is going to find the next thing if, if we're always stuck just going after the last thing. I, I really like your passion on that one, Bob. <laughs> so let me, let me um, give you an analogy if I can. So I promised everybody I wouldn't talk about lasagna in this discussion, so I'll talk about teenagers. If, if any of you have been around a teenager, or God help you, raised one as I did, who is now even worse, a polymer chemist, uh, he, you choose your, you know the old saying to, that you say, you'd hear parents say, choose your battles? You did a risk analysis, right? So perhaps using illegal drugs had a higher risk and your tolerance was zero, particularly if you were me because I prosecuted straight out of law school. Uh, the reality is you might say, you know, a tongue piercing, he'll grow out of it. And he did. Uh, so uh, we, you know, I did a risk-based analysis there and, you know, hoped that it didn't involve an infection. So too, what Bob said is critical. Suzanne has a unique perspective given the environment in which the software is utilized and the risk that is associated with that. Mm. Let me assure you, here's a not, a, not a well-kept secret, but amazingly still a secret. We don't fix all vulnerabilities. We don't patch everything. Mm -hmm. It would be silly to do so, number one. So the concept of information sharing that you've heard my colleagues talk about and looking at it in a risk-based approach is really important for a number of reasons. One, you may not know everybody who has actually developed the software. Number two, you need to understand, I, I think as Joyce has said, and I will tell you all the time, you cannot ingest or inhale your software experience. You still use digital devices. So can you use other methodologies if the software is utilized in a physical device that will give you a flag on an aberration or anomalous behavior? These are things that all of us do regularly in our households and in our lives, and yet my, my message, if you walk away from nothing else, is this is complex, but it is possible, and it is feasible for us to do it if we take a risk-based approach. I, I am optimistic. In fact, I am really enthusiastic about it. We have been making inroads. There are things that you can do ahead of the curve before you get to the known vulnerability database. How about being aware of common weakness enumeration? Help one another. And, and my message is there has never been a more important time for public-private partnership, cross-industry information sharing, Forget saving the planet. We're going to blow ourselves up with a cyber war if we don't get this right. The time is now. There is no time to wait. Uh, I'm not particularly worried about the ozone laser, laser layer being depleted. That will not kill me. The cyber war will first. So we have to embark on a journey of information sharing, sharing with our allies, 
understanding adversaries and making meaningful inroads across that huge third-party ecosystem, that will be meaningful improvement. Not just sharing with our allies, we talked about this before too, you and I, is that even competitors should be sharing that type of information. Right. You guys okay with that? All right. I'm going to take a quick mental step back here so that we can, that's a, a broad conversation there. Do we have any questions at this point that you'd like to ask specifically based upon what we just talked about? And there's two microphones there in the aisle, just step right up. Got somebody coming right there. Hi, Maureen back from Inside Cyber. Um, how big of a loss would it be if NTIA's software transparency initiative didn't result in an actual agreement to have those vulnerabilities that you would cross-check with known databases or databases of known vulnerabilities uh, didn't make it in there? You're, I assume you're addressing the question to me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, FDA has worked closely with NTIA's Department of Commerce with Alan Friedman on a number of really key public-private partnership efforts or multi-stakeholder engagement efforts. Software transparency being the present one, we've worked on coordinated disclosure and patchability, updatability as well. And there's no question that NTIA and Alan's work has been a key catalyst I can't emphasize that enough in terms of really driving the work that has uh, helped or served as a springboard for the work that FDA has been doing with its stakeholders. Um, I think that the work would happen regardless, but it might go at a different pace. Um, and, uh, and so we really relish in having uh, such a strong partner um, in the work that we're doing and uh, the benefits that NTIA provides, first of all, in it taking like the regulatory aspect out of uh, the equation. Um, and, uh, and that sometimes having the regulatory piece in there can have somewhat of a chilling effect. Um, so the fact that our regulated industry, the manufacturers, see FDA as really wanting to remove itself from impeding the kind of progress that happens and to provide the appropriate framework and the appropriate incentives to do the right thing and to be agile as much as we can, I think has been also a... Out, an outcome of the partnerships that we've had with NTIA. Great. Thank you. Just hold on. Alan, I want to acknowledge you while you're here. If you could stand up so people can say, see you. So th thank you for all the work that you're doing. Appreciate it. Round of applause, Alan. There you go. That, that deserves it. There we go. Good. Please. So wait, before you oh, ask your yeah. question, I'm sorry, I'm compelled to answer. There's no stopping me unless you take the mic away or pull me away. <laughs> I, I want to say something that I think Alan and Suzanne, you articulated as well, and Alan, you and I talked about this, both privately and publicly. This, the software bill of materials is a starting point. At the end of the day, right, knowing where your, your infrastructure comes from and the pieces of, oh God, I'm going to go to the lasagna, I can't help it. Um, where, right, where your materials come from is important, but what you do 
with that knowledge still comes down to what I said at the outset, which is, are you, as an OEM, vetting what you know about those third parties and independent of what you know, because there is no way today to actually vet line by line against any known, every known vulnerability what the processes are, even if they have a secure development life cycle, they might be ISO 34, uh, 27,034 compliant, they have a whole host of other things, they might be following safe code, you still need to do testing and vetting. So it comes down to if you are selling something to someone, have integrity about the quality. We live in a digital economy, you cannot have quality without understanding the quality of your software, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Sorry, thank you Great, for thank allowing you. me that. Uh, Kim Setter, I'm a journalist. You mentioned, uh, the question was, um, what did you guys think was the most vulnerable, um, um, I guess, sector? And you had said the lack of knowledge. And I feel like the software updates is the most concerning uh, vulnerability because it's a, it's a trusted supply chain. Uh, so it's a trusted channel. And we're pushing cars and medical manufacturers to do over-the-air uh, software updates. We recently had, of course, the supply chain attack from Asus that involved their um, uh, software update tool. So uh, my question is, um, should there be, if we're going to push uh, critical sectors like cars and medical manufacturers and others, if we're going to push them to be providing these updates, um, should this come with a complementary regulation or requirement about how they should be securing that channel? I mean, with ASIS, um, they lost uh, control of their, um, their signing key, their, the, the certificate key. Um, but there are other ways of authentication that you can do with software updates that no one seems to be doing. So should this be something that should be imposed if we're going to be imposing over-the-air updates from them? Or do we let the market um, respond when, for instance, ASUS is told that their software updates have been compromised and they don't do anything about it? Thank you, Kim. Um, so, Kim, I'll start off by answering that, um, first of all, not every medical device um, is updated over the air, um, and, and it really depends upon the type of device, uh, and that becomes a risk-based related decision as well. Uh, working together with the manufacturer and FDA and determining what is the safest way to provide or to deploy the type of an update. Um, with regard to whether um, there needs to be regulation around how that update is delivered or the processes for that, I think that um, that, well, it's a hard question to answer. I think as we are right now at somewhat of a junction or a crossroads in the fact that we did just update a gui draft guidance indicating that, number one, we expect to see with new devices that come on the market that they have a process and they have evidence that they're demonstrating to the FDA for being able to provide updates and patches in a safe manner to a device without affecting the performance of that device. 
And while that is right now included within our pre-market guidance, we've also signaled in a safety action plan um, and publicized that we are seeking additional authority for potentially making that an additional legislative requirement too. So I think that uh, in some regards, it's a little bit of both. It's a hybrid um, situation uh, where right now we certainly um, are strongly encouraging manufacturers to do so, and it's within our capability as we review new submissions that come to FDA once the guidance is finalized to make a determination as to whether we think that device is safe to include whether its ability to be updated is appropriately demonstrated as safe. So there's that with regard to new devices. In terms of on the post-market, which is probably the bigger issue right now, right? All the legacy devices that are out there. We are really evaluating the means by which an update would be provided or deployed almost on a case-by-case -case basis in discussions with the manufacturer and with an understanding of what would be the implications for how that patch or fix is deployed uh, in terms of, again, interfering in some ways potentially with the performance of that device. Um, I would like to add to that as well. There's an interesting thought piece from the Center for Democracy and Technology um, uh, about a year ago on um, product liability and that as, a, as a, a society, as we move to using more and more um, IoT items that if they fail have a physical consequence for us versus an economic consequence if you're just inconvenienced and you have to reboot something, then you, you might live with that. But um, when, you, when, when you have... Um, uh, actual physical harm that comes from um, uh, poor quality poor quality work so if the over the air update is is um, uh, not done not done well or over the air updates should not be the way one updates software I think we are probably heading in a direction where we're going to see you know more and more discussion about product liability so let me let me jump into that fray for a minute I, I think you made really excellent points I think there's a difference and in, in, in terms of should you asked a very specific question, which is, should we be regulating that, or should we let the market speak? If you talk about a car which consumers buy, consumers frequently make decisions based on cost. We all know that, no matter what. We can all think of a car manufacturer that has had leadership, uh, fraud in the press. Uh, it has had uh, environmental findings, um, it has had failed safety uh, airbags, and yet I still see those vehicles on the road, and I see them advertising, and the last time I looked, their stock was doing really well. Consumers make interesting choices because consumers have constrained budgets, as do governments, but they don't have the overall liability or obligation to care for citizenry. They're making their personal decision. I would look at legislation and regulation in that arena differently than I would in the delivery of healthcare products, which is already highly regulated, and where you know you're going to be working with manufacturers. You know I'm, we're certainly at Cisco involved in our, our solutions are used in places where things can blow up, warfighters can die, um, nuclear waste can come 
to fruition. So there are serious ramifications. There's not a lot of legislation and regulation, but because we work in public-private partnerships because of the ramifications of that, it's different than when you sit as an individual consumer and say, I would really like to know whether or not I have eggs in my refrigerator, so I'm gonna buy a connected refrigerator, I'm gonna use my mobile phone app to tell me that when I'm in the supermarket, and you never think of the fact that there's a camera in that refrigerator to do that and it's documenting information about you. Where is that stored? When are they going to upgrade that? More importantly, somebody can use that as ransom because there's a, a prescription in your refrigerator that relates to a particular medical disorder that you would prefer everybody not know. Consumers don't think like that yet. I am hoping that our next generation will but that burden is on us. So I would see a split. Mm -hmm. Legislation and regulation used in a certain arena differently than in another. And the split for me is consumer versus infrastructure. And, and, and since we're talking about it, I, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that regulation is only a good answer if you can do regulation effectively. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. there are things that you can regulate effectively and there are things you can as much as you would want to there. And so uh, an evaluation of how effective in a dynamic environment regulation will work and then what does it mean to innovation in the market and those sorts of things. That's all part of this conversation. It goes back to the sort of theme of, of risk-based, not compliance-based. It's, it's use regulation if you don't think that it's going to get there, there, and you can do it effectively. So. Right. And I think that, um, yeah, the idea for, for us, certainly at FDA, isn't to take a blunt instrument, you know, to use a blunt instrument uh, with regard to regulation, but to be, you know, to really look and to study thoughtfully where it, it can be impactful, where we don't have uh, other tools or means or levers to use. and. Uh, the position that we've really taken with regard to cybersecurity of medical devices all along has been one of how do we uh, how do we advance the state or the posture of the ecosystem um, uh, in a way that it's not being reactive, that it's not as a result of something bad having happened, and that you see a knee-jerk kind of a reaction and regulation that could be, you know, not thoughtful and um, has not really been fully analyzed and evaluated. So given the years that we've now been working this through, I think we have a pretty good sense in terms of where we think those levers may be appropriate um, and really carving out those specific areas becomes, I think, the, you know, the most powerful way to approach this. Great. Thank you. One more question. Um, Dan Pasquale, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I've heard a lot all day today about collaboration and, and, and sharing of information. I think it's all positive. It's all very good. The, what, in my job as the agency's expert for counterfeit and fraudulent items, I get asked this question all the time about, is there a list very similar to what FDA said? Is there a list of these known vulnerabilities that you can share with us? I always look for cross-cutting elements because in the industrial side, we use almost every piece of equipment there is out there, right? From steel, sheet steel, all the way up to, to, to software. And this is used all through the industry. When I go to Consumer Protection Services Commission, they tell me, yeah, but our charter is limited to retail products. So you can't really report industrial goods to them. It's consumer-based. When I go to MDA and I go to Department of Defense, 
those high security things, they're all covered, they're addressed, there's ways to report that. So, but you have this huge donut hole in the middle that you can't really move this cross-cutting information and say, we've identified a, a vulnerability here or a vulnerability there. So if there was something that we could have, maybe through the 16 critical infrastructure sectors where we could share this information, push it through the sectors, maybe as in, in the form of a bulletin or an alert or something like that that would be right in line with the known vulnerability database, that would just be absolutely huge for the industrial supply chain. Great, thank you. Thank you. It was a statement, but there's a question implied in there. Um, but again, another amen. Um, so, I mean, in, in listening to your question, there are a couple things that I think are worth mentioning in this audience. One uh, is the, uh, the impending stand-up of the Federal Acquisition Security Council, and, you know, which came out of legislation from last year on, you know, cohering and advancing the strategy for the federal government to manage risk to its supply chain. And one of the mandates out of that is for the agencies to come together and create an information sharing repository. And, and you know, Joyce and, and, and certainly DNI and, and folks will be involved, DHS will be involved, and try to get to a point where there's, we're doing a better job within the federal space of sharing things that will help us make supply chain decisions, taking advantage of things that are protected for one reason or another, but perhaps we can you know, separate some of the protections in terms of information to things that get out into the procurer and the decision maker. Um, and then the other thing that we're doing, sort of relevant going back to the 16 critical infrastructure sectors and the work we do at DHS, is as part of our role in the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain um, Task Force, um, you know, we, we've, we've also convened and are working with um, ICT providers and ENDA's on our task force, Information Communications Technology Supply Chain Risk Management Tech Task Force, which is taking on directly the question of how not only, you know, whatever we can combine and aggregate in terms of information the federal government has, how do we then get that information into, um, you know, the value chain creators, to use Edna's phrase, who, who may be able to make decisions that then help us with our own supply chain, but, but then with their own supply chain. And, uh, you know, I also think industry is doing due diligence at different stages and making decisions for business purposes that perhaps don't have to be proprietary decisions and, and can be shared there. And so the question of, I, I do think a, a sort of better aggregation of decisions that are being made about when, when, who to trust, what to trust, when to trust it, and, and why to trust it, and making that information available, and then setting up processes that you can query that, that is, is kind of um, where we're trying to go strategically, um, both at the federal level and cross-critical infrastructure. We're starting with the ICT because it's such a big provider of, of the supply chains. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of a lifelong journey, um, but, but I do think there's enough to, to, to borrow Edna, there's enough enthusiasm right now, there's momentum, and I think we can really start to um, knock off a, a better information source that, that then can be usable more widely to folks like you who have to make those decisions. Bob, if, if I can be devil's advocate here for the questionnaire, everybody's in agreement with that. So where do you start? Where do you? How do you, how do you get started? How do you disseminate it? How are you gonna get the core groups to agree for the dissemination message? I mean, to some extent, you've already started, right? To, to some extent, it's just not as systematic as we want it to be. And so, you know, we query the intelligence community when we're making decisions. We're sending other people are able to query the intelligence community. There are conversations with DOD across the procurement community about decisions that they're making. You know, we, we share, particularly with our Five Eyes partners, 
information that, that they may have related to that. And you know, across the critical infrastructure sectors, there is, we, we've set up the structures to collaborate and share information. There's a bunch of information sharing analysis centers, the ISACs, ISAS, and you can point to success stories within that. I don't think it's system as systematic as you would hope. I don't think it's at scale yet as a solution. So let me let me Please. add. Uh, was there somebody? Did somebody want it? Suzanne, was that you? No. No. Okay. Uh, so. You know, the task force is doing something, so I have the privilege of not only being on the executive committee, but um, co-chairing our working group on information sharing. And I, and I think, you know, Bob, you said something that's, that's really important. There are, and we were chatting about this, quite frankly, right before we came on stage, there are multiple places where information is shared. And, and, and some of them are just a network of industry partners. We all have our networks. Some of them are in ISOs, some of them are in sector coordinating councils. Um, some of them are actually in industry organizations. You know, the Edison Electric Institute comes to mind as a glaring example of thinking uh, holistically across its membership in the power arena. Um, but what do we do about that? So what we've done is a very tactical approach to start with the information communication technology supply chain which is a piece, it's not the end all and be all, but think comprehensively about all risks. And, and the questioner asked specifically about um, counterfeit and certainly tampered or what I would call tainted um, solutions that you're dealing with. There are other risks. And so we are trying to look at the kinds of information that would be useful for us to know and compile that list. The next step is we have some constraints. One, is the information available? And this is not just with government, but also within industry. And then look at the legality of whether government can share it, because we have the privilege of residing in a democracy, and there are parameters on what you can share and when. And of course, it can be, as you said, you can, we can put it in through its cleaning process so that it doesn't necessarily have to contain the classified elements. And then there's another side from the industry perspective, which I think about, which is, we may have information, but we don't want to share it unless we have a safe harbor, unless it's with somebody in a trusted, quiet conversation and not documented, because if I say something, and I'll give you a glaring example. We experienced this years ago when I was in supply chain operations. We were having product failures. We couldn't figure out why. We finally figured out that we had one particular manufacturer who had changed the solder paste and they had inserted red phosphorus. And red phosphorus was having a negative physical ramification on the electrical connectivity of the boards. That took a lot of work. So what do you do? Do you alert the entire industry and say, that supplier has red phosphorus, we discovered it. We chose to actually go to that supplier and say, you know, you're part of our value chain, we'd like to sit down and work with you, why did you do this? what was going on. So we didn't raise a ruckus. Uh, they fixed it. They were as committed to their quality uh, as we were. They just didn't have the final testing capacity that we had because they were earlier in the supply chain. So I think that kind of information sharing is really important, but it comes down to once we figure out what it is and whether we can share it, whether there's a repository that we can put it in, who has access to that, 
and more importantly, how you can use it, because the other thing we discussed was some people might use that as a competitive weapon, which is not the intent of a collaborative information sharing, and they could say, well, I can tell you I'm clean in that environment and my competitor is not. That's the last thing you want to have happen. So part of this reason um, for why this, these pockets of information are not shared broadly is because there are subtleties in a democratic society and there are subtleties in a place where all of us who make things or who share services for a price are liable. We're liable to the warranty. So I wonder at some point, and I worry about this, whether we might see the answer come out of a de facto standard of care that is going to be issued by some judge somewhere, probably not in a federal court, probably in a state court, about what the level of standard of care on security and risk management really is in X environment, just like today we have medical malpractice and legal malpractice and a whole host of other types of situations. They're not legislated, they're not regulated, but boy is there liability. Bob, I've got one for you that kind of extends on this. And it's because of the, the size uh, of the, the, the group that you're running. It says, you're running a process that has a huge number of very powerful actors, both industry and government. Some of them have a vested interest in the status quo. What does progress look like in that state? How do you manage and coordinate and tell a story of change with that much inertia on those sides? So the framing of that question, I, I would say, is a, a little bit cynical, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, so the, the, the process that, that you're asking about, Mark, is um, the ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force that I referenced. Um, we have 60 named members of the ICT Risk Management Task Force, 20 federal government agencies, um, 20, 20 members of the IT sector coordinating council, and you can imagine you know, the Microsofts, the Palo Alto Networks, the, the Dells, some of the associations, the Samsungs, you know, just to, to name a few, 20 members of the communications sector coordinating council, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, um, CenturyLink, et cetera. Again, as well as associations that represent some of the smaller players there. So, so part of the answer is you make sure you have small businesses represented through associations, okay. you have different perspectives through associations. Um, the reason I find that a, a, somewhat of a cynical question is, I'm not ready to believe that big companies come to work with the government on security problems to protect their own interests as the first principle, right? There's certainly an element of which, sure, business interests are part of the reason that, you know, people like Edna, who serves on the council, is getting paid a salary, and part of her salary is to spend some time working with us. So they're business interests. But that's because I think fundamentally there's enough agreement that supply chain security is key to the business. And so when you run a process like that, you got to start with the idea that, that, you know, for the most part, people are there because it is in their interest to advance the notion of supply chain security, and there are different solutions. And again, the other half of the sort of cynical nature is we can't figure this out without them there. Um, the, the knowledge that those companies have of how markets move, how supply chains work, how technologies evolve, outpace the knowledge we can have in, in government only. And so we could have the same 20 agencies sitting around having a conversation about how to do supply chain risk management, and we would be missing a ton of knowledge that would help us do it effectively. It goes back to the question of 
things like effective re regulation. What is effective government policy? Effective government policy is, is something that will add value to what the market can create itself, add value to the innovation that's already out there, not get in the way, way of those sorts of things. And so you have to allow for a process to, to invite the private sector into the conversation. I mean, there will be ultimately, so, so going through sort of tactically how we're gonna run the task force, we're letting groups come together. There's sort of a dynamic disagreement of perspective. There's there dynamic disagreements within that. That hopefully will help find some commonalities and then, you know, where there are areas of difference, we'll, we'll file them away for a, a little while and say, but let, let's at least knock down the commonalities, the, the things we want to do to create information sharing repositories, the incentives that would cause people to put more trust into their supply chain. I don't find those controversial. Some of the solutions, there might be disagreement. We're, we're, we're not going to get through this process to complete consensus on some of the more controversial solutions, but I'd rather knock out the 75% of areas of agreement and leave the rest for further conversation. Right. I'm going to, anybody want to comment on that? I'm going to get to the questions in a second. I'm going to, uh, we've got about a half hour left, and I'm going to do, how many people know Wendy Nathan? Does anybody know Wendy? Yeah. Right. So she dared me to do this, Edna. <laughs> <laughs> so can I get everybody in the room to stand up, please? And we've got a half hour to go, so be a nice little stretch break for you. And panelists, please stand up, please stand up. So, Edna, this is coming directly from Wendy. What's your favorite trick when you're shorter than everyone else in the room? Let's hear the question. <laughs> um, oh, boy. <laughs> so you can tell that I uh, don't live in California, right, after hearing me talk, because I still talk. Um, so... The way to get people's attention is have content that is meaningful, speak with authority, hug a lot, <laughs> and look at your colleagues and say, Cisco does not pay me to work with the government. I still have to get my job done, but Cisco supports the fact that we believe fundamentally we are part of this nation and this world's solutions. And some of us are remarkably grateful that all of you are here. God bless you. You are here at five minutes to six. You are the last Mohicans. So I owe all of you a hug. Um, and at the end of the day, my answer is be real. And everybody else who's out there who's real will listen to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for that. I see two questions. Looks like we have four questions. I'm willing to go for it. You guys ready for questions? <laughs> yeah. All right, please. Thank you. Um, I'm Clementine Stalling. I'm with the Atlantic Council. I have two questions. Um, the first being, what sectors do you think remain the most vulnerable to, to supply chain attacks? And a secondary question to that is, um, in your kind of wealth of experience from your different perspectives, what would you say are kind of best practices that should be better leverage to best mitigate supply chain vulnerabilities potentially in those specific sectors that you that you might outline in the first question thank you who wants to tackle that first so i'll, I'll tackle that from the from the government perspective um, 
certainly our, our colleagues in the Department of Defense who look at the defense industrial base see that the defense industrial base is under siege for, via cyber attacks on, on a daily basis. Um, in fact, um, the Secretary of the Navy recently um, uh, released a report um, written by um, a set of individuals who evaluated their cyber readiness posture within the Navy. And um, it was a uh, it's kind of a frightening report with um, a, a statement that came out of it in the in, in the executive summary that um, the the um, level of of threat and uh, attack that they were under that every theft of intellectual property is of material consequence. So certainly the Department of Defense and the the industry that that works day in and day out with that part of our of our nation um, is is. Um, under attack by a very persistent threat actor. So, so there's um, a, a, um, a, a level of concern from a national security perspective that an adversary will go after our defenses. So, so that is um, whether, whether the Department of Defense is um, ready and as the Department of Defense improves its cyber posture and is ready to take the fight to the adversary um, on, a, on a daily basis anywhere, um, that's, that's an area that's going to be consistently under, under, under attack. I, I hate to answer this question exactly how you frame it as most vulnerable because I hate, hate mm -hmm. to keep score that way, but, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I, let me add a couple sectors where I see seriousness because partially the threat, because of the risk, because of, of the valuation. And so both the critical manufacturing and the electric subsector, the oil, natural gas, probably the whole energy sector, you know, this is a constant conversation among industry and government representatives of how important this is. And, you, you know, I perceive that, you know, when, when senior people working for companies have spent the time talking about these things, it's because um, they, they view the issue as critically important. So, so I would add those couple sectors into part of this conversation in terms of best practices and things you can do. I, I mean, I, I do think we want to start to talk about, or I mean, you can start to talk about testing regimes, you can start to talk about innovation, engineering, some of, some of the supply chain vulnerabilities out of, of some things that's not an ICT think necessarily, you know, that might be more OT type areas, um, procurement and how to do effective buying that allows you, how to write the contracts in a way that allows you to have more insight and the expectation of more insight into the provenance of, of things that go into your supply chain and, and to go back to the verify sorts of things. And so, you know, best practices within the, within the frame and then you get to the more operational ways to do that. But, but those are some of the areas we tend to emphasize. Good. All right. Thanks. Matt? Uh, my name is Matt Howard. I'm with Sonotype. Um, thank you guys for being here. On the panel today, you've talked about the concept of software supply chain liability. You've talked about the concept of software supply chain regulation. And I'm curious if you think back to 1965 and Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, and the change that that brought forth within the U.S. automobile industry and, and the way we've evolved today where automobile manufacturers now market cars with safety as a feature that matters to consumers, what do you think is more likely to impact how organizations build software? Is it liability or is it regulation or is it the market? The market. It's the market. Period. At the end of the day, we're in business to make money. So if you want to make money, you're going to look at what people care about, number one. 
Um, number two, we care about our brand. We are not unique in that manner. Um, most good companies do, and that's almost every company. So uh, I think it's a market issue, uh, but I'm biased perhaps given where I sit. Um, and that's from an enterprise perspective. Again, I'm going to put consumers over here to the side, but I have hope in the next generation. Um, if we can get academia on board, uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, but for me, it's a, it's a pretty simple and, and, um, and clear answer, quite frankly. And, and just to add from the market, I mean, going back to your, your example, and you know, I, I never read Unsafe at any speed, but so I'll just assume what happened. But, but part of it was, going back to risk tolerance, part of it was society recognized that they were not going to take the level of risk that the automobile industry at that time pres presumably was causing. And so market is, is also a way, you know, in, in some of these issues on national security, it's also a way to have a conversation of what the people want, mm -hmm. citizens want, and that goes to the political will and, and sorts of things like that. So, so I think that's part of the equation, and then it's trying to figure out what are the, what are the right tools. But, but even when you go back and look at right, that, that analogy, it's that there was a popular will that enabled a change in strategic approach or a change in policy approach. Yeah, I would add to that uh, that the conversation within FDA and uh, its industry, the regulated industry, has been revolving around the uh, concept of quality um, and making that case for quality. So that sort of blends this idea of, yes, safety being a very basic aspect, uh, integral to devices, but really moving from this culture of compliance to one of the product being one of quality. Um, so that wasn't included as one of the options to choose from, but I would uh, consider that to be a particular characteristic that manufacturers in the medical device world have been kind of uh, uh, coming around. Um, I, would, I would like to add um, uh, some of the thinking out of the Department of Defense um, led to a report produced by the MITRE Corporation called Deliver Uncompromised. And one of the core principles in that was um, a, an examination of how do, you think about, how do you think about safety and how do you incentivize um, safety you know, from a government perspective in our, our contractual relationships. And we find ourselves sometimes if we did not specify clearly enough in contract language that we wanted a particular security or, sa or safety feature, we're not going to get that because we will get exactly what we contracted for and exactly what we paid for. And it's, it's, the, it's the nature of the agreement between the government and the, and the uh, company providing, providing the good or the service. So the Deliver on Compromise report um, lays out a, a concept of security as the fourth pillar so that um, organizations you know, begin to think not just about um, compliance as the only way to get secure products, but to look at cost schedule performance and security um, as, as part of the overall risk equation. Uh, in, that, in that report, there was also you know, recommendations about um, you know, the role of Congress, you know, the role of the insurance industry, that there are other forces that can be brought to bear to change, uh, to change the environment so that security becomes um, a, an, expected, an expected item, an expected feature, uh, an expected function in, in goods and services that we get. Great point. And just to follow up on that before, one of the things that I flashed on as you were talking, everybody was talking, is this going to happen because of a generational change with the new people coming up that are going to demand security? 
as opposed to people that don't even know to ask right now? <laughs> I think we need to teach them to demand security. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're uh, in and it's it's geographically different. I mean, in Europe, they're concerned about privacy in a way that Americans are not, right. number one. Um, but a lot of people don't understand that you can't have privacy if you don't have security. Mm -hmm. uh, to us, because we're security experts, that is a mind-boggling statement to make. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a reality. Um, so I think the burden is on us. I have great hope for them. Um, I can tell you that I, I'm pretty good, and I have trouble cracking my son's password. Um, I've done it twice. Um, and he's a chemist. I mean, he's not a security person. So there, there is a generational difference, but I still think we're in the soup together, uh, and they don't necessarily, because they grew up with the opportunity to experience ubiquitously available information from any source, right. number one, and the way they work and think is collectively. You and I grew up in a day and age where you went off, you went into your, preferably for me, an entire section of the library where no one else was there, or the lab when no one else was there, and I did my work in isolation. They work in a teeming manner that is very different. So we need to give them the benefit of the wisdom of those of us who were isolationists, and they need to teach us how to effectively team in a secure manner. I would say that um, there is even a greater need or urgency with regard to new, you know, next generation because of the fact that the interoperability and the usability and the functionality of different types of devices, the wonders that and the extraordinary features that they have makes them, uh, you know, uh, so important, you know, and so much an extension of one's life for a younger generation, but without being educated and being made aware around the security piece, that falls to the wayside. And we see that yeah. translated in the healthcare sphere. We see that with the medical students, nursing students, new residents and fellows, um, that of course, you know, everyone loves the new gadgets, particularly if they're providing just extraordinary performance and functionality that old school did not have, but if they are, but they also present risks, and if those risks are not appropriately messaged or educated around, then um, I think we have some bigger problems on our hand. Mm -hmm. Joyce, yeah, I thought, did you have anything, Joyce? Okay, good, thank you. Please. Hi, there seems to be an increasing confusion between what's hardware and what's software. A lot of hardware today seems pretty general purpose. Uh, and having software-based programmed logic uh, onto it. And the software that we see is increasingly running on virtual machines, on containers and microservices and cloud-based infrastructure as a service. And so in this blurring world, how do you change your supply chain management practices to understand uh, risk involved in the components you choose or in the system that, uh, that you end up delivering to your customers? I don't have my glasses on, and I have a light in my eye. But that sounded, is that you, Amit? It is, I'm sorry. To okay. <laughs> okay. So I'll give you an answer. I don't know if it's the right answer, but it's the answer I've deployed at Cisco. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental five-step process, and it says, who's in that value chain? 
What service or product did they deliver to me? Where is it being utilized and how? And that is the foundational premise upon which I then can deploy an 11 uh, chapter or domain architecture that I've written around security but I have to have the elbow room and the flexibility to say, I'm gonna deploy the right security in the right way at the right time based on the nature of what you're doing, right? So if it's sheet metal, it's different than my integrated circuit provider. If it's my third-party cloud service provider, who by the way is using a container model to separate their tenants, right? That's something I'm gonna to wanna to know and what I ask of them is different. So part of it is information sharing and recognizing we live in a day and age where the old school thought, at least from an information and communications technology mindset of there's, there's them and then there's us, it's gone. There's only we. Um, and you pointed out the very reason why. So for me, it's having that fundamental step process because only then can you apply what everybody on this panel has said over and over again, a risk-based approach. If you don't know what the risk is and you can't apply it, just like Alan says, if you don't know what software is in your bill of materials, Edna, how can you go do the testing? We've had this debate. Uh, Bob, you leaned in on that. Do you got anything on that? Okay, good, thank you. I'm Emily Fry with the MITRE Corporation. And as we were going through the past half hour, starting with the gentleman from the commission who was asking about the need to distribute information across 16 sectors, how do we do that? And then with you, Ed, now talking about the need to share some things in trusted communities, but hold other things, uh, provide other things more broadly, and keeping in the back of my mind the VEP. So all of these tidbits are coming together, and in my mind, they felt very familiar. And a few minutes ago, I realized why. To me, this feels like, although we have to acknowledge that the supply chain is much broader than software, this feels like the set of data points that resulted in CVE. And I wonder, do we need a CVE for the industrial supply chain? Yes, is the answer. Yes, I think there's a, well, you know, you know this, there's a group out of MITRE, I think uh, Bob is working on it, and um, I know some folks who are looking at applying as well, not only the concept of common vulnerabilities in this blended, to use a MIT's word, um, you know, world of hardware and software, but also, how do we ask questions about it to the points that, you know, I think Joyce, you, you talked about, how do you measure, how do you test, um, and, and how, what do you use, Bob said, talked about what do you use in what contract. So there's a, an effort to do sort of the SIG, which is out there right now for IT only, and the SIG for OT, um, because again, when you have true convergence, the answer is, we need to think about them collectively. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't, you know, Bob keeps saying amen. Uh, you know, every time I see you, I actually say hallelujah. And yes, I haven't called you. And yes, we are going to do dinner. I, I would say in, in, in addition to that, um, when, when, when we look at um, uh, you know, suppliers of concern and we want to make sure that um, when we reach a, reach a level of concern that, that um, uh, in a particular area, 
they're, they're, the risk is too high to, to use a particular supplier, and we make a decision that we're not going to use, use that supplier, we then need to be able to figure out how to um, share that information with others, sort of like with indicators of compromise. And if you don't have, you know, sort of a systemic process in place to, to frame that information like you would with CVE, then, then you're, you're, you're stymied from the beginning. Um, I would also add to, add to you know, being able to respond to that type of data, you have to have um, um, uh, good asset management in place. And many times in government, asset management is perceived to be the function of the logistics folks um, who at the end of the fiscal year are trying to figure out, you know, do I have an accurate accounting of all the cell phones and, and laptops that, that we gave to our government employees? And they're not necessarily thinking, hmm, do I know what my assets are deployed on my networks? So, so both the sharing of information and, and robust asset management programs go hand in glove. I'm enough of a bureaucrat that um, I know every acronym has a couple different meanings, and so I thought you were asking about countering violent extremism, and I'd say <laughs> we also should counter, counter violent extremists who want to do harm through supply chains. So. We've got two more questions. We're going to run short on time, so if you could condense the answers. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Please. Uh, thanks. Um, so uh, Ms. Conway has uh, mentioned, and others, the importance of testing and um, sources at CISA have said that um, there's exploration there, testing equipment uh, in the industrial control system uh, sector um, uh, with external partners. My question is, uh, one, how is CISA thinking about maybe expanding this kind of testing? Mm -hmm. And um, so that one's for Bob. <laughs> and uh, the second part is... We're going to have to keep, keep yeah. them short. And the second part is, uh, would that third party, would those third parties look like someone like a private company like Underwriters Laboratory, or would it be sort of more... Uh, government-funded corporation set up to do this, Wh and that's for everyone. Um, how should we be thinking about who potential third-party testers should be? Yeah, uh, thanks, Marin. Um In terms of the first question, I mean, I, I think you know a lot of the testing we do right now is through national labs and work that we, you know, particularly in ICS through the Idaho National Lab, and, and we're looking for opportunities. Um, there, there are other test bed type things we're expanding. I mean, I, I think to the degree that we can use government money, that's a good use of the government to, to start to fund the capability to, to test things and set up processes to do that. And then I think, you know, as, as we think about the task force and what we're doing and, and the next steps going towards your second question, we don't want to be prescriptive necessarily of the right way, whether it's an underwriter's laboratory, whether it's government testing, whether it's the right way. We, we want to understand what it would take to incentivize more testing out there into the marketplace in a way that results vulnerabilities can be shared in a safe way that we can get to the kind of information um, repositories we're talking about. It. And so I think as a nation, more, more testbed capability that can be pulled on from different things is, is something that should be part of our risk mitigation strategies, but I don't want to jump to the end of the story of, of exactly how to do that. Can I just add a little piece sure. to that from the medical device side is that um, we uh, have been 
working on building various kinds of test beds uh, with uh, hospitals or academic medical centers and manufacturers um, and through our MITRE collaboration as well, we think it's really important that that kind of sandbox or test beds occurs within a clinical or a simulated clinical environment so that it's a safe space removed from patients, but yet it simulates enough of the clinical environment that you're not just looking in a vacuum at the device, but what the potential cascading consequences are by virtue of connecting it up with other systems that would uh, be part of the care paradigm for that patient. Great. Thank you. Short one? Yep. Uh, my name is Robert Orr. I'm from Appian Corp. And uh, first of all, Edna, I am from California, but I will try to speak in a way that uh, you can understand. It's okay. Yeah, New Yorkers understand everything. All right. Totally. <laughs> totally. All right. Um, I want to posit that, uh, that open source uh, poses some challenges and maybe is different in some ways and see what you, uh, how you respond to that. There was an incident recently where um, a JavaScript module that we use was uh, the maintainer of it got tired of maintaining it and handed it off to somebody uh, in the open source community and he immediately put in a crypto mining uh, credential stealer. Luckily the, the community found it, but this is a kind of a unique problem. It's, it, it, you can't say, you know, who was, uh, in this case, his name was, you know, Right 9 Control, but, you know, Fluffy Bunny 99, you know, you can't figure out who that was. You can't go back to that supplier. Um, it's open source, you know, has its own challenges in this way and is almost different in some ways because it's so malleable. I agree, and there's a reason why people buy open source software from through a third party that, you know, did anybody predict who would buy Red Hat? Just think about that. Nice, short, great. All right, one more question to, to round everything up. I know you see the clock there. I just talked, we're good, we're good with time. So the final thing, because I want people to actually walk away with something they can actually use uh, when they leave today. So there's two ways I'm, I'm trying to frame it, which would be, I think I'm going to go with, what's the one key initiative that you're following that you think will have the biggest difference in the supply chain security? What's the one initiative that you're following? doesn't have to be yours. could be somebody else's. So I'll, I'll go first with an Please. easy answer to that. Um, so, so Mark, you know, um, was gracious enough to open with uh, saying that um, April's National Supply Chain Integrity Month, and then you very specifically said, what can people take away with them? So we are actually um, have an awareness campaign that we're doing with DHS and with the Department of Defense, the Defense Security Service. So if you go to our website in csc.gov, we have a number of informational materials there, you know, from uh, explanatory infographics to information on the, the, the statute that was signed by the president, the Secure Technology. Act. So there's a variety of things you can, you know, check and, and uh, you know, take home. Great. Thank you. What she said. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's what we're working on, and that will, you know, solve the world's problems. But, but you know, I, I think Joyce has talked a lot about DOD, but, but I think it is worth having a conversation of the, or not having a conversation, we're done with conversations, but, but the energy that the Defense Department is putting into really driving this into their own supply chain in a way, you know, we're trying to do the same thing across the federal spend and across the federal, but that we'll really take a major mover and put, elevate this into the risk equation of a major mover that will have lots of downstream impacts. So, so in addition to what we're trying to do across the federal government, I think the Defense Department has an ability to, and we've seen that in the past, not just in, in sort of incentive size, mm -hmm. but, but also 
tools, technologies, processes that, that I think hopefully we, we DHS will work with them to help get out into the broader critical infrastructure community. The extension of that question, too, is, is there anything specifically that you see that's going to happen within the next three years that's going to have a big impact? So you can answer it in that way if you want. Yeah, ITOT convergence is going to become real, oh. and you need to stop thinking about zeros and ones. CISOs will still be important. You're going to need chief security officers who think about physical, logical, operational, as well as information security, and never forget the human element. Excellent. Suzanne? I think that um, aside from what I mentioned earlier, the importance of the software transparency initiative that we've been working on, which is really critical because it will help inform not only FDA's direction or efforts forward, but also how uh, the private sector will work together with hospitals. That's one key piece. The other one to your broader question, it is about raising the level of awareness and empowering other stakeholder groups around the entire issue that have really not been engaged to the extent that they have been. And by that, I'm talking about the clinical provider community and patients. So a lot of, when you talk about real levers in terms of change over the next few years, we really need to be empowering clinicians to better understand how to have even those discussions around risk-based uh, decisions with patients and for patients to be sufficiently informed that they're able to make treatment decisions based upon that information. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically monitor and remediate open source risk. <laughs>